Good morning. Uh, my name is Whitley Bechtel, and I have the privilege of reading the scripture for this morning. It comes from Matthew 10, 26 to 33. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. When I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also, I will also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men... I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Thank you, Whitley and Scott. Well, I had to ask my wife permission to share this story because it's embarrassing. Not so much to her, but to me. In college, when Brooke and I were dating, one Friday night, we hear some friends are going to watch a movie, and so we head over to their place. It's one of those things where no one's invited per se. They just sort of um, happens as things do in college, and people show up. So there's 12 of us there watching this movie, and I could tell um, the host was a little uncomfortable as he put the movie uh, in the the VCR at that time, (laughs) Uh, in the movie player, I guess, and um, I didn't think anything of it because I didn't know anything of the movie, and, and it didn't take long to know why he was a little uncomfortable. It wasn't horrible, uh, but it was decidedly kind of in that category of, is this helpful for a Christian or perhaps anyone to watch? And, and, and then there we are watching it, and I start looking around the room, and I realize like half of us are in a Bible study together. And I start thinking, someone should say something or do something, and no one does until I do. So I stand up, and I look around, and I say, well, Brooke is tired. I'm going to take her home. (laughs) And we walk out the door. That's all I said. Um, And the other night when I asked Brooke if I could share this, we laughed about it sitting there on the couch. And she says to me, did I yell at you after that? Um, (laughs) And I said, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, she didn't like being blamed. <laughs> uh, and I don't blame her for that. She didn't deserve it. Uh, but I did deserve to be yelled at. If, if we could have paused uh, right then, um, that scene in, in, in my friend's living room and, and asked In that moment, when someone needs to stand up and say, okay, this is wrong, but someone chose to say something else, um, and we could have paused and said, what fear was bubbling up in my heart that caused me to say one thing and not the other? Why why was I afraid? But I want to talk about me for a minute, though. I I want to talk about you. Why is your schedule so overcommitted? Like, why are some of you filling your schedules like this pitcher of water that you can't even carry without, like, just spilling everywhere as you go about life? 
Why do some of you dread a performance review at work? Why have some of you let extended family run your life? Why do some of you constantly just second-guessing yourself, constantly agonizing about how you're coming across and how people are receiving you? Why do some of you overspend, overdress, overexercise? Why do some of you laugh at jokes that are not funny but obscene? Why, why, why do some of you who have become Christians in the last year, but, but you haven't told anyone? The author Tim Keller, he, he writes in his book about idols, a book called Counterfeit Gods, super helpful. And, and a place in that book, he distinguishes by what, by what he calls surface idols and deep idols. And he says two people may have the same surface idols, but not the same deep idols. So I'll just say, say, so like money. Two people may say like the outworking of their idolatry is money, but the deeper reasons for it are are different. So one man might want money because it, it provides a security. Like if I just have enough, then I'll have everything I need if anything could ever go wrong. And another person has that same idol of money, but, but money provides a certain status and, and, and security and, and a favor with a certain crowd. So same surface idol, but different root idols. I don't know why you're overcommitted, tired, let in-laws ru- rule your life, constantly second-guess yourself, and are deathly afraid of conflict. I don't know why you are the way you are, but perhaps you do some of these things for the same reason I cowardly blame my girlfriend for being tired when I should have said something else as the leader of that Bible study. For the reason the Bible often calls the fear of man. There are other words for it. We can call it people-pleasing, codependency, or something else. But at the core, at the depth of it, it's the same Many significant points in the Bible, the fear of man paralyzes people from doing the Lord's will, stealing their joy, robbing God of his glory. I can think of the story of Moses. God powerfully works through Moses, leads God's people out of the grip of Pharaoh and Egypt. And as they're on the precipice of the promised land, Moses is there judging God's people. And his grip is so tight that every decision has to come through him. And his father-in-law says to him, Exodus chapter um, 18, verses 17 and 18, he says, quote, what you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out. Later in the book of Numbers, just a little bit after that scene, God sends out 12 spies into the land of promise to scout it out. And, and many of you know the story. The 12 spies come back and they all say the land is good. 10 of them, however, also say, but they're huge and we're not. The language they use is of grasshoppers. Um, we look to them as grasshoppers and they look yeah, to us like giants is their language. And then two of them say, no, we, yeah, that's true too, but we can do this because God is with us. But the fear of man that gripped the ten overruns the people. And God says, as you wandered the land of promise for 40 days, you're going to wander the land of wilderness for 40 years until everyone over the age of 20 dies. <laughs> it's the fear of man. There are many other stories. There's King Saul in, in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel when he offers an unauthorized sacrifice and loses his kingship. 
In this tailspin after that event, King Hezekiah, many years later, 1 Kings 20, he shows foreign dignitaries. He says, look at, the, look at the armory of the Lord. Look at the treasure in the temple and shows that off. And the Lord says, your kingship will be cut short. I think of Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, in the moments when Jesus is arrested and three times he's asked, do, do, you, know, do you even know him? He said, I don't, I don't know him. Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5. We preached through this in January or February of this year. And they come and they present their partial gift to the Lord saying, hey, this is the full gift. Look at us. And you just, you, it feels like in the background of this, there's this desire to please people. And yet the fear of the Lord falls decidedly over the people of God when they're struck dead. At the root of these stories, and perhaps at the root of many of your woes in life, is the fear of man. My wife and I can laugh about it, this story from 18 years ago. But it wasn't funny then. Not to us and not to God. This passage here has much to say about the fear of God. And as the passage goes on, in a very interesting way, it flip-flops between ideas. At first we're told to not fear, and then we're told to fear, and then at the end we're told not to fear again. So let's talk about all of that. Let's start with the first few verses. Let me reread these again. So Matthew chapter 10, I'm going to read through verse 26, 7 in the beginning of 28. So have no fear of them, Jesus says. This is, he's in the middle of a, we're picking them up midstream, which I'll explain in a moment. But he says, so have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. We'll stop there for the moment. The context of our passage is Jesus sending out the disciples to preach about him. They're sent out, in the words of verse 17, as sheep in the midst of wolves. But that's not all that Jesus says. Nothing remains hidden forever, he says. No secrets are kept forever. And sometimes when the Bible speaks of this way of things being revealed and secrets not being kept and what's hidden being disclosed, it's talking about one or of two things or sometimes both, most often. It's talking about sin being exposed ultimately on the last day or he's talking about justice ultimately being done on the last day or perhaps both. So we might see a commercial that claims what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, but the Bible says what happens in Vegas will one day be disclosed as it will whatever happens anywhere. And so we can speak of sin being exposed and we can also speak of on a final great day, justice being done. Just what did happen to Breonna Taylor? Like what does the grand jury know? Or not know? Some people think they know one thing, others think they know something else. What we know as Christians is that one day God will unroll the scrolls of history and justice will be upheld, whatever that is. But neither of these senses are exactly what's being talked about here. When Jesus speaks of revealing what's in darkness, darkness at least here means the unseen private devotion to the Lord. Jesus means this revealing this revealing of the unseen to be an encouragement to disciples, to be an encouragement to you who are following Jesus. 
means it to be an encouragement to speak his word with conviction and clarity. Even if when you speak God's truth to power, that power then crushes you. And it feels like nothing was accomplished by your costly effort. Jesus is saying, shout it from the rooftops that Jesus is Lord because he is. And one day the world will know and you will know that your labor in the Lord was not in vain. The temptation existed then, as it does today, to bend God's truth, the truth of God's word, to be more accommodating to culture. Not far from here, where all of us are sitting, uh, there's a sign in the front of a church building that says, Jesus didn't reject people, neither do we. And I think, I know, one possible way a committed Christian could say that Jesus never rejected people and mean something true and helpful. Perhaps the words of the sign could mean that anyone who wants to come to Jesus can come to him if they come on his terms. But saying that anyone can come to Jesus on his terms is not the same thing as saying everyone who comes to Jesus on their own terms will be accepted by Jesus. Which is what that sign actually means. You can't surrender to the Lord Jesus on your terms. We surrender on his. But it would be cowardly for me to pick on another church. I'm talking to us. Many of us, and I know many of you, so I'm not speaking to everyone, but I'm speaking to many of us who call this church home, can look at liberal churches and see the error of their ways, while at the same time looking at the preaching done by strict fundamentalist types talking about sin and hell and judgment. And we can position ourselves in this cozy middle. We can position ourselves as those who are passionate, but not crazy, as serious about God's word, but not fanatics, convictional, but winsome. We can position ourselves as not too hot, not too cold, but just right. But are we? I fear many of us have equated being nice with loving people. We love to have people speak well of us. And we often knock off the rough edges of Christianity to make it and us appear more attractive to outsiders. But Jesus seemed to think those rough edges matter. Would it be easier for you to go on a mission trip and tell other people about Jesus than the people you see every week? Why? We love to be liked. If the way to a relationship with God begins with the acknowledgement that we are sinners and need a Savior, then we only hurt people, not love them. When we never speak of what the Bible speaks of often. If your doctor told you she sent detailed medical information in the mail about your test results, about your health diagnosis, and about the forthcoming treatment, you would not consider it loving loving if the person delivering the mail to your mailbox in an effort to be nice changed the wording of that letter before putting it in your mailbox. Don't be afraid, my dear disciples, Jesus says. 
Speak my word from the rooftops. And this leads to the next point. It might feel as though Jesus flip-flops and in the same sentence he told us not to fear, he does so tells us to fear. Look with me at all of verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. This short verse should cause us to tremble. And notice the hotness of hell and the lasting nature of hell are not exactly what Jesus says to fear. Hell is hot, hell is long, but that's not what we should be afraid of. Jesus says, rather fear him who can destroy both the body and soul in hell. Don't most fear people, don't most fear hell, fear God. Again, this short verse should cause us to tremble. A few years ago, we preached through the book of Job in the Old Testament. I'm not sure how many were here for that. I'm not sure how many people know how the book of Job ends or how it even progresses through all 42 chapters. Let me just tell you briefly, the book of Job is this epic poem that tells the story of Job's terrible sufferings, his miserable friends, and the God who has glorious but often hidden sovereignty. Near the end of the book, God speaks. And and this is how God addresses Job. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. And then comes question after question after question. Verses 4 through 7. We read this. Where were you when I, God says, laid the foundation of the earth? Tell, tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or on what were its bases sunk? Think, think of buildings and what are called grade beams. These concrete pillars that get put into the ground. Dozens of feet below skyscrapers that rise above the gradient, what we can see above. It's talking about the earth here. On what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstones, the cornerstones of the earth? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, when the angels were rejoicing, Job, where were you? And God goes on for four chapters. Job, do you know when the mountain goats give birth, he asks. I do. Job, can you tame the biggest creatures of the sea, like the Leviathan, whatever, whatever that was? I can, God says. And finally, Job answers the Lord saying, this is in chapter 42, verse 2 and verses 5 and 6. Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. When the Bible speaks of the fear of God, it often means reverence and awe and wonder. Like what Job came to know at the end of the book. 
Perhaps you know the story of Jesus on the Sea of Galilee and the storm that just blew in out of nowhere. Jesus is sleeping on the boat. He's tired. He's taking a nap. When the storm rolls in and the professional fishermen who spent their lives on the ocean are terrified that they're going to die. They wake up Jesus. Jesus asks, why are you so afraid? He calms the storm. And then Mark records this line, Mark 441. And they were filled with great fear. They're afraid before the storm, during the, or they're afraid during the storm. Jesus calms the storm, and then Mark records, and then they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the kind of fear that God invites us to. Don't be afraid of those who can kill the body, but have fear of me. Have a healthy respect and awe and wonder at the power of my might, Jesus says. There may be some big, bad enemies of God out there, but the Lord of lords and King of kings is not small. He's big. But Jesus doesn't stop there with these words. He could have stopped there. And if he had stopped there, we would have known true things about him. Indeed, much that's true of him. But it would be to miss the good news, what Scott was referring to before the heart of Christ. What is the heart of our Savior? Look with me at verses 29 through 33. Jesus asks, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. For everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. We have that question about if a tree falls in a forest and no one hears it, about whether it made a sound. If something happens that no one knows about or cares about, does it even matter? But Jesus says two sparrows are so cheap that the smallest increment of money buys two of them, not one. With one penny, you don't buy one sparrow, you get two. But Jesus says not one of them, half a penny, falls to the ground without him knowing and caring. Today, we don't buy and sell many sparrows. Maybe goldfish would be better animal for our day. But you get the point. If Jesus cares about the goldfish if he cares about the hairs of your head, if he loves you and dies for you and your sins, then he is the one whom we should fear and not fear. He's the one we should have the right fear of, fear of in the right ways, and not fear him in the wrong ways. We should have a reverence and awe and wonder, but not a fear that he wants to crush us. Jesus wants to love you. When we hear the words confess here in this passage, as when Jesus speaks of confessing him before men, what we most often, when we hear the word confess, 
As we think of the context of confessing wrong. But the word for confess is broader than that. To confess more broadly can mean to affirm something is true. We can affirm something is wrong of us is true. Like we're sinners. We can confess that. But it has a broader meaning. For example, we confess a, f- a confession of faith. Later in the worship service, we're going to read together the Apostles' Creed. Which is a confession about what we believe about Jesus. This is part of what Jesus means here by confess. That we believe in our hearts and declare to others that Jesus is alive and he reigns and he loves his people and he's coming again. And we can be troubled here by this language of denying Jesus before men. And to some degree, maybe maybe we should... um, The consequences of that are significant. He's going to deny us before the Father. But Jesus, let me just be clear, he's not referring to a momentary lapse of faith. When he speaks of denying him before men. That leads, this momentary lapse of faith, which leads to a cowardly denial of who Jesus is. That is exactly what happened to the Apostle Peter on the night Jesus was arrested. When asked if he knew Jesus Peter denied even knowing Jesus three times to the point that he begins calling down curses upon himself. Like, Lord, God, just curse me if I even know this guy over here. And Peter was forgiven and reinstated. Just as anyone who would be, who truly loves Jesus, but in a weak moment, let Jesus down. Which is every Christian? What Jesus must mean by denial is this settled posture of rejection, a decided commitment against Jesus. And those decidedly against him and his terms, he does reject. But here's the good news. Perhaps you do have a settled conviction against Jesus to not trust him, to not follow him. I want you to know he can change you and forgive you this morning like that. Yes, he will deny those who deny him. But clearly, the whole passage, the entirety of Jesus' words, the sending out of those disciples and the sending out of these disciples is done in such a way to let us know that he will not reject you if you would only come to him. That is his heart. He wants to own you and love you and protect you. He wants a relationship with you. Back in verse 26, I I made quite a deal about this uncovering and darkness and hidden and revealing. But there's something I didn't point out. I want to point out here about that phrase and those verses up there in verse 26 and following. Jesus speaks of things in the dark that we are to say in the light. And what we hear whispered, we are to proclaim from the housetop. We talked about those phrases already. But what I didn't highlight before was the relationship that's implied by them. Jesus wants to speak with you. He wants to be able to whisper and have you recognize his firm and loving voice. I drew the title for this sermon from a book with a similar name. It was written in 1997 by Edward Welch. He's gone on and written other helpful books. And this book continues to sell well, and it should. It's a good book. The author writes this 
at one place in the book, all experiences of the fear of man share at least one common feature. People are big. They have grown to idolatrous proportions in our lives. They control us. And since there is no room in our hearts to worship both God and people, whenever people are big, God is not. When people are big, life is exhausting. The imagery of a weathering vane comes to mind. You know those things they sit on top of houses or barns? They're shaped like roosters. Wherever the wind blows, they have to turn. It's exhausting. If every room you enter, if every conversation you have, you're constantly trying to assess, how am I coming across? Are people going to like me? You will eventually become exhausted. One of my capstone classes in seminary required us to write a paper about seminary. So pastor school here, the end of the pastor school, pastoral theology, capstone type class. Specifically, this paper about sin, the, this class of future pastors were required to write a paper that explored our hearts to find out what sin was in each of our hearts that if it went unchecked would require us to leave the ministry. We were to explore our hearts and what the Bible has to say about that. I'm not going to share my paper with you. I wrote the paper, though, entitled it On Saying Yes and Saying No. And I argued that when we say yes to one thing, we are often saying no to something else or to someone else. Specifically, I argued that when we say yes to everyone, we say at the same time no to God and the people he has most directly called us to love and serve. In short, I wrote a paper on the fear of man because I feared it would be the sin if left unchecked would force me out of ministry. It's not the most provocative of sins, but it is common and it has teeth. If the paralyzing fear of man is something that has its teeth in you, no, I I fight with it weekly. But don't be afraid. Hear the good news from Jesus that I must remind myself of often and what our passage reminds us of this morning. People are not big. They matter. They matter to God. They should matter to us. But they're not big in that sense. God is big. And the God who is big loves big. Would you join me in prayer? as we invite the worship team to come back up and lead us in a couple songs. Heavenly Father, we pause to just just be still. And to recognize you want to do something holy and significant in our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would take away the idols that exhaust us and give us more of yourself. Would you grow? You you are big, but would you grow big in our hearts? 
And might we know your heart, gentle, lowly, yoke easy, burden light, that when we cast off the, the fear of man and the, our love of pleasing people, you give us something better. And in the end, actually enable us to love the people we couldn't have loved well beforehand. We pray for this in Christ's name.